Welcome to the teaching ministry at Crothers Creek Community Church. Good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for being here this morning, the Brave 909 crowd. Good morning. We're glad you're here. And a huge welcome to many of you watching and listening online uh, this morning. It was two Saturday mornings ago, it was 5 a.m. in the morning, and I was in a very deep sleep. Suddenly, in my dream, my wife appears, and she says these words to me, John, there is a mouse downstairs. Unbeknownst to me, at that moment, my wife actually had been downstairs. She was feeding our young daughter, Emma, and as she was feeding her, a mouse basically ran across her feet. Not the greatest experience in the morning. She comes up to my room and she says, John, uh, there's a mouse downstairs. This is how I respond. My eyes close. I'm still in deep sleep. What do you mean by that, Joanna? Joanna looks at me across the darkened room and says it a little slower. John, there is a mouse downstairs. To which I respond, because she's in my dream now as a spy. Don't ask me why. Telling me code. So I respond to her truly, and she's right here, she'll attest this. I said, but what do you really mean by that, Joanna? Now thinking there is an intellectual deficiency happening in my mind, she says it even slower and a little bit more angry now. Jonathan, there is a mouse downstairs, to which I respond again, but what do you really mean by that? She yells, John, wake up, there is a mouse downstairs, deal with it. I'm awake. Imagine this picture. I go downstairs. It's 5 a.m. I have my pajama pants on, no shirt, suddenly a broom in my hand, and Tupperware. I am ready to engage the mouse. As I go to engage the enemy, which of course is an urbanite I am very fearful of, I suddenly realize that my back is not covered. I turn around. Where is my wife? Where is my rear guard? She's on the stairs, cowering. I've never seen Joanna like this in 10 years of marriage like this. I said, Joanna, you must help me. Only with shoes, she says. So I go get her shoes. So suddenly, we're ready for the battle. I'm looking around. Remember, it's 5 a.m. I'm in a deep sleep, bloodshot eyes. I have no clue what's going on. And then my eyes meet the enemy. There he is in front of me, the ugly, large, evil, dangerous thing that stole my sleep and oppressed my wife and threatened my young child. I am ready. My eyes meet his. His are beady. Mine are bloodshot. His ears are, well, the same size of my ears. We continue to look back and forth, and I realize the enemy is the size of my pinky. Joanne and I spend 15 and a half minutes trying to trap him. Eventually, we get him all the way into our front foyer. And at that moment, what does he do? He goes into our shoes. Oh, lovely. Joanna puts up a baby gate. Catch this. She's on this side. I'm now trapped with the enemy. I go in and I start systematically brooming out the shoes. You you country people are like, you're so weak. Yes, we are. Well, it tries to escape. It runs. Well, I scream like a girl. It runs by me. It hits the baby gate. I've got the broom and it actually runs out the open door. Oh, I close the door. I'm like, oh, thank you, God. I'm going back to sleep. But my wife says, but wonder if there's a whole nest of them. I said, well, I don't care. I'm going to bed. Now, it struck me, that little experience that morning, 
because it was an obvious thing. It's something many of us go through every year. But this is what caught me as I was reflecting on this message. It was about being jolted awake. It took me not one, not two, but four experiences of my wife, who I know very well, communicating with me to truly tell me what was going on. And I just did not get it. It took an external force to walk in and say, this is reality. This is what you're facing. You need to come and deal with it. Well, as I was reflecting on that funny, not so funny that morning, but funny experience now, this is exactly what this message is this morning. I wrestled with God all week. Why, God, would you give me this passage as we're going to three services and making room? God whispered back, because my people, my people who I love, need to be jolted awake in a way they have not been in 25 years of history in this church. For so much now is at stake. God comes to us this morning with this message to you who are not Christians, and he says, I want to jolt you to reality, to where you really are with me. To many of us, he says, I want to jolt you as Christians to reality. You think you're rich, but you're poor. You think things are well, but they're not. And he wants to say to many of us, there's still hope also. So if you have a Bible this morning, turn to James chapter 4 as we continue in this series, A Normal Christian Life. James in chapter 4 now expands on what we talked about as a family last week, what it must be, what the Christian community must be like, uh, the very things that we must reflect, but he also spends a lot of time talking about those things that will kill, that will maim, that will destroy the local church, no matter denomination, makeup, or geography. Think on last week for a moment. He said these words to us, a normal Christian life is marked by one thing, Wisdom from heaven. Wisdom is just working out our faith, seeing God's merciful love spill over into our lives and we accepting it and then it's spilling over to neighbor. A normal Christian life must be demonstrated, he said. It must be evidenced by one thing. It must be evidenced by works, but it needs to be done in an attitude of humility. But then he pointed out that bitter envy and selfish ambition was in the church and was actually leading Christians to act against the truth we'd embraced. Chapter 3, verse 15, read like this. You'll see it beside me here. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is unearthly. It is, uh, it's earthly, unspiritual, and it is demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder of every single kind. Every evil practice, he says, will be present. The local church, he says, must be by God's power. See these terrible things removed. Then he said we're commanded to pray that we'd be marked by heavenly wisdom. Remember, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, sincere, and peacemakers. But after such a hopeful and godly call, James goes back to dealing with the dark side among us. He shakes us at that 5 o'clock in the morning experience. He says, look, I am not done trying to deal with the issues, the disorder that plagues the church. Like he did before, now James poses another question among us this morning. James 4.1 reads like this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desire to battle within you? Again, we were reminded, as one wrote, that James is painting a picture of a Christian community very deeply divided. The church is beset by jealousy, selfish ambition, slander, a willingness to depart from the truth, and a host of ills that reflect the culture of the day, not Jesus. See, for James and for the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Father and the Holy Spirit, this is a fight for the soul of the church. 
Instead of seeing Acts 2, 42 through 47, we now see a church marred by rancor and dysfunction. He says there are fights and quarrels among you. Fights means war, battle, violent personal relationships. And quarrel is where we get our modern English word polemics, extended, prolonged verbal disputes. Both, using, both are used to describe terrible verbal clashes between Christians. James is saying fighting and wars are already evidenced, I remind you, he says, among you. This is between church members, followers of Jesus, those that have experienced grace, those who've been moved from darkness to light. Yet if this unholy zeal keeps going, it could actually lead, he says, to violence of all sorts, even murder among each other. Harsh words, criticism, slander, the misuse of the tongue. We saw that in James 3. It is now given its ugly home in interpersonal conflict. How sad, how ungodly, what pain this should bring for us. Though we are charged with bringing the good news to a lost, dying, spiritually dead, and spiritually in bondage world, much of the time, we as Christians are known for our fighting spirit against each other first and the world. Most people look at the Christian community and say, I don't know what you're for, but I sure know what you're against. And by the way, how you treat each other, I don't know if I want to join that family. It was in the 17th century, a genuine reflecting seeker named Spinoza, a great Jewish philosopher of his day, wrote these damning words of us. Things have not changed. He penned these words. Listen to them. I have often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, you know, namely, he says, love, joy, peace, temperance, charity to all people, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another with such bitter hatred that these things, rather than the virtues they say with their mouth, is the readiest criteria of their faith. Wow. Wow. A great man who genuinely probably wanted to check out Jesus was stopped by us. Simply put, extreme conflict within the church is not God's will, and it's never been the design for God's body. Yet James knows, as his brother had taught us, that he must go to the real root of the problem, the place of motive, uh, the nexus where external conflict really comes from. The world is at a breaking point, wouldn't you agree? Within the human family, let's say, as a whole, not just the church, psychologists, psychiatrists, counselors, pastors, teachers, the government can't keep up. From impatience to frustration, anger, hostility, spillover now to road rage, domestic violence, war, abuse, crime, murder, cursing to intimidation, to racism, to organized crime, to lust, to violence. And James reminds us, he shakes us in the morning and says these words, don't think it's just a learned thing. It comes from a darkened heart or a re-darkened heart. Crothers Creek, he challenges us. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Or is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? Desire or pleasure is where we get our modern word, ready? Hedonist from, which is defined as an uncontrolled personal desire to fulfill every passion and whim and the promise of sensual satisfaction and enjoyment. I mean, Paul outlines this life really well in 2 Timothy 3.2. People... They're going to be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and unholy, without love, unforgiving and slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, 
He says they're treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And don't miss this, by the way. James is writing to Christians, not non-Christians. We can't say, oh, it's their issue, not ours. James is addressing us. He says, you desire, but you do not have. So you end up killing. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. So when you don't get what you want, when you think something should happen and it doesn't, when your view is not the supreme view, uh, when you think your desires are more, you end up within the church community killing with looks, with thoughts, with speech, from Twitter to email, from Facebook to small groups. I mean, Jesus already taught us this, right, church? In Matthew 5, Jesus says, you have heard it said, don't murder because you'll come under judgment. But later, he says in the same thing, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with their brother or their sister, it will be under the same judgment. When pastor preach, when a lusting person, not just sexual lust, when a lusting person cannot achieve their desired goal, whether for reputation, prestige, sexual gratification, money, power, escaping through drugs, alcohol, success or possessions, the effect on other people, let alone themselves, is catastrophic. James says, you don't only murder among my people. Actually, you end up doing that other thing I already talked to you about, coveting. That bitter envy and jealousy again. The breaking of the 10th commandment, which of course leads us to break all the other commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's spouse. You should not covet a manservant, a maidservant, ox, donkey, anything that belongs to your neighbor to covet. To be jealous is going after what we cannot have. That is what our neighbor either cannot give up or is not willing to give up. This coveting, James says very bluntly to us this morning when it is frustrated, will lead to quarrels and fights, which leads to verbal, then emotional, and even physical violence. It is a cycle of transgression, which sin produces. The world loves and the demonic live in and enjoy and even glory in. The people of God who have the mind of Christ, who have a redeemed nature, end up reflecting the other kingdom they've been saved from, which gives the demonic such perverted joy. And so at this point, James looks intently at this torn asunder community and says, by the way, by the way, by the way, by the way, this is one of the chief reasons why many of your prayers are not being answered. Notice in the next two lines, you is used six times. James is speaking to us. Verse two, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you're full of selfish ambition, even as a Christian, when you're jealous, when you're spoiling for a fight, when hedonism and not holiness is your standard, whether privately or publicly, you will never pray for real. Why would you, even as a Christian, pray? There would be no need to ask for daily bread, forgiveness, to worship, to be thankful, to forgive others, to cry out for freedom from temptation and the demonic. I mean, this would end up violating your current worldview. To pray these things would expose your deeds. The truth is some of your lives prove, even as a Christian, that you think you're self-sufficient, able to care for yourself, and despite God's chosen work in you, you live like your own wisdom, power, and diligence can work it out. So why would you ask? Jesus taught us amazing things. So simply in Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Uh, Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. But if you're so full of jealousy or ambition, you will never genuinely pray. Because then you'd have to admit that he's in control. James isn't done. Then he speaks to another group, actually those who are praying. And he says, oh yes, 
Some of you do ask, but unlike the others, you're not even asking with a pure motive. God's will isn't in your heart. Your prayers are actually corrupt in the nostrils of God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get from God on your own pleasures. He says, when you ask, I learned this this week, don't miss this. See, the word ask in Greek isn't just a three-second prayer. It actually means pleading and begging and imploring. He says, some of you as Christians are pleading and struggling with God, but your motives are wrong and you're using God in prayer like a weapon to get what you think should happen or to get what you want. God will not give you what you want because you will use his blessings for pleasure. This struck me this week. The word pleasure here is the same word Jesus used in the prodigal son story when the son went out and squandered his inheritance on inappropriate sex, money, power, and parties. Many of you ask and pray for bad or neutral or even good things, but the reason why you never get an answer is your motive is not prayer, is not pure. You're not there to further the kingdom of God, to see the local church move forward, to see yourself or others transformed. You ask what you'll never get. Augustine wrote about these abusive prayers. If someone intends to misuse what they receive, God will never give it to them, but he may have pity on them. Then these words. Here's the oh my goodness moment. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. The words jump off the page, right? Slap us. How rude. How un-Canadian. How judgmental we cry. That's not fair. Yet the saying comes out of a broken heart. From the very tears of heaven. You adulterous people. This is a marriage issue, God says to us. I am a jealous lover. Throughout the whole Bible, God only uses this phrase for his own people, the Hebrew people. God had elected himself, graciously elected them, so they would be in a covenant relationship forever with him. And now he says to us, the local church, the same things. What you are doing is like having sex with someone who is not your spouse and thinking it's just going to be okay and is never going to be found out. He says, you have a love affair. You have a friendship with the world. And you know this because your perspectives and aims and ambitions and attitudes and agreements are no different than anyone else who doesn't know Jesus. And oh, by the way, the proof is, he says, in your everyday life. Yes, you listen to Christian radio and maybe open your Bible and do a little devotional. But your everyday life is not radically transformed. There is no difference between you and your good moral pagan neighbor. Why do you have such an intense and deep affection For the world system I saved you out of. The world is self-glorifying and self-fulfilling. It is self-sufficient and self-indulgent. It is self-serving. All of that, he says, is hostility towards God. It's the opposite of friendship. As that rebuke is still felt maybe on our face and definitely on our hearts. James then reminds us, so needed reminder, of one of the greatest dreams throughout of all of Scripture. God loves us even as adulterers or do you think the scriptures say with that reason verse 5 that he jealously longs for the spirit he causes to dwell within us oh how we miss the great love and work and power of god because we make the fatal mistake of connecting this to the modern word of jealous god is not suspicious god is not wrongful or envious he is not some weird husband stalking us in the middle of the night he is married and loves his people so much he has pure jealousy for us it's the opposite form of the jealousy tearing at the fabric of the church 
One wrote, the greatest insult that can be done against his pure, eternal, everlasting love is to slight it and embrace a lesser, more base love. Comes right out of the Ten Commandments, right? Exodus chapter 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I saved you when you could do nothing. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't bow down or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Hear me, Crothers Creek. The head of this church, it's not me and it's not the elders and it's not the staff. God himself will brook no rivals among us. God wants to dwell with us. He did through the Lord Jesus. And if you're a Christian this morning, he actually does through his spirit. Peter and Paul say, remember, we're his temple, we're his chosen priesthood, his people. He longs for us, church. He is jealous for us more than we ever understand. James isn't done giving us hope. From pure jealousy, he now gives us promised ability. He says this, verse 6, but he gives us more grace. God's grace is completely adequate and is given to meet the requirements imposed on us by his loving jealousy. God is holy, yes. He is transcendent. He is judge, all-powerful. He is a consuming fire, yet he is also merciful. He is gracious, all-loving, and willing to supply everything we need. That's what's called grace. Remember Jesus' death and resurrection. He covers all our sin and its ugliness. He gives us the spirit of God that convicts us, the one that empowers us, the one that transforms us, the only one that can surgically remove this friendship, this cancer that is among us. God's grace is such that it gives the power to overcome the friendship. God's grace leads to freedom. God's grace leads to victory. God's grace leads to second chances. Grace leads to conquering the very things that haunt us and our church. And grace leads our lives to be marked by heavenly wisdom. Again, I love Augustine who wrote, God gives everything that he demands. That's why he says in the next verse, that is why scripture says, listen closely, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble and also to the oppressed. One guy in the 70s writing on pride penned these words. The pride that shuts itself from God is evident and it's there for three reasons. Pride does not know its own need. Pride cherishes its own independence. Through actions, the middle finger becomes much more favorable to open arms with God. But lastly, it does not recognize sin. A pride like that cannot receive help because it does not know it actually needs help and therefore it cannot ask. It loves God, not, it does not love God, it loves itself. James says to all of us this morning, submit yourself then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Submit yourself is a military term, I learned this also. It means to rank under someone in submission, but it's voluntary. He says, submit yourself, and then when you do that, resist the demonic and they will flee from you. Stand against the harsh captivity of the world. Stand against the enemy of this church, the enemy of your family, the enemy of your small group, the enemy of your soul. There is no middle ground, he says. Stand in the power of God against your old master, and when you say yes to God, through word and deed, the power of Jesus is present. The same power Jesus used, and when the demonic encounter that, they will have to flee. James now spends time outlining just simply in a few verses how we submit. He uses Old Testament language of prophet and of priest. He starts with these words. Just listen to this closely. He starts with these words. Verse 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. 
Come near to God and he will come near to you. Come have intimate relationship with God. It was a technical term used to actually refer to the work of priests in the temple. It was a time to deal with sin and coming with the attitude that I'm about to meet the creator of the universe and I need to acknowledge I'm not him. Exodus 19.22 And the priests who approached the Lord, same phrase, consecrated themselves or the Lord would break out against them. The whole idea is this, we come near to the living God to worship and we need to make sure we're ready. I love what one said, and I, I feel this, I'll say this in the next, at least the next service, I feel this, this is very specific to some of you as senior highs, I don't know why. I love what this one person said, this is more than simply trying to be better as a Christian. It is to fully enter into the presence of God and to reside there, to be comfortable there, to be at home with God. It is a longing for heaven on earth to walk again in the garden without, without any shame. He says, come near to God, church. And then he promises this, I will actually come near to you. God approaches us unworthy. Why? Because God at his very essence and DNA still is love. Then he says, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Wash your hands, again, is temple and tabernacle language. It says in Exodus 30 that Aaron and his sons, when they were about to actually go into the presence of God, had to wash their hands and their feet so God would not break out against them. Again, it is a symbolic statement saying, get your heart right with me. He says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Don't be the person that claims one thing on Sunday morning, but during the week there is no evidence. Well, suddenly he moves to prophetic language. Listen, from priest to prophet, James at this moment categorically calls us as his people back to himself, that is God. God is near, he says, and since he's near, now my church come clean. James is no killjoy. He's not some abusive pastor manipulating the situation. He invites people to be honest, to deal with sin, so life and hope and communal relationships and power can be seen again. Listen to this verse. Grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Grieve, genuinely be broken about the sin you have done or continue to do. He says mourn and weep. I was struck by this. The phrase comes from the idea when someone very close to us dies. All of us have been at funerals, I think. All of us know the gut-wrenching hopelessness sometimes we feel, even as Christians. And we mourn for their loss and we weep. And James says, do this over your sin. Think about it. You who have been Christians for so long, if you have never mourned or wept over your sin, there is a great chance you have never been revived in your spiritual walk. James says to us as a church, grieve, mourn, weep. And then he says these beautiful words, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. To humble ourselves before the Lord just means to recognize our spiritual poverty, to acknowledge our desperate need for him afresh. Yet making, self one low, making oneself low does not mean put downs or self-cursing or hateful thoughts like I'm fat, stupid, ugly, unlovable, useless, a waste of life or a waste of skin. That is not humility. That is the words of darkness we are called to resist it is drawing near to God with a genuine realization that he is God and we are not he is holy and we are not he is pure and loving and truthfully we're not either and then he restates this I will lift you up 
I, the living God of heaven and earth, will take you and myself, and I will actually lift you up. And if there is anyone we want to lift us up who's got purity and has all things under his power, it's him. Now this morning at this service and the other two, here's the question we need to wrestle with. What is God honestly trying to say to us this morning? Now I want to take a few moments to reflect on this. Though these words are directed to Christians, at its heart, at its root, is the amazing love of God and the path that some of you must take to actually meet God in a personal way, moving from observational to relational. God now speaks to many here and many online. You who call yourself spiritual, but you have no religion. You that belong to another religion or faith. You that have no faith at all. You're, you're an agnostic or an atheist. To you that carry the title Christian, but honestly, you know in your heart you're not a follower. I want you to know at this moment the living God, whether you even believe in his existence or not, comes to you and says, I am the one that created you. Come. This is how you get life, he says. This is how you get salvation, hope. This is how all the stuff you've done against yourself and others gets cleaned up. This is how you get purpose, life here and eternal life. This is how you become a fully alive human. He says, submit. Turn to Jesus and cry out, I am a sinner. Listen, I'm prideful. I've lived like you do not exist. Or I've lived with the lie that I could make you what I wanted you to be. I believed that lie. I believed the other lie, too. I could live without you. I believed the lie that I'm good and spiritual, and, if, and I'm just a good person. Everything is going to work out. I submit. I ask you to be Savior and Lord. I, I believe Jesus died and rose again. Come deal with my rebellion and sin. Thank you for shocking me this morning. He says, submit and then resist. Simple thing. As a seeker, you say, I'm done with my sin. I'm done with the world that tells me something, and I'm definitely done with the demonic. The next thing to do is draw near. Choose to have a relationship. I choose God to be within my life. I choose to have communion with you. I love what Paul said again. I love Paul so much because he used to murder us. And he met the Lord Jesus in a profound way and became one of our greatest thinkers. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated his love for us that we will still sinners. Christ died for us. For if we were God's enemies, we were reconciled through him by his death out of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? God says to you as seekers, hear me. Submit, resist, draw near, cleanse and purify. Have grief and sorrow. Shed tears. Ask God to break your heart. Help help me just here it is god help me to know how much i've sinned against myself and others so i will be broken enough to do the repentance thing and turn a 180 humble yourself say god whatever you want my life is now in your hands i am no longer in control i i break that lie do something with me for a moment holy spirit i ask you to come right now by your power if you're that person or persons no matter where you are listening anywhere no matter your faith or background, if the Spirit of God is now waking you up, pray this with me. Do it. And the rest of us, why don't you take a moment to pray for those people. God, here I am. I don't get all this stuff. But you're speaking to me. So here's what I'm going to say to you. I submit to you. I'm done. I resist the world, my sin, and evil. I choose to draw near to you. I believe Jesus has died and rose again, and I submit. Cleanse me and purify me. God, 
make me sorrowful for what I've done. And I humble myself and say, Jesus, forgive me and move in and take over. I've got nothing left. I ask this for the first time, really, in Jesus' name. Amen. If that's you, God is about to transform your life in a way you have no clue about. Make sure to tell someone you've done this. But I'm not done yet for all of us. I think this passage, friends, is a wake-up call for the many of us that are married to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. One wrote, isn't it refreshing to realize the early church didn't have it all together? Furthermore, because they didn't have it all together, we get to actually see James' James's words of admonishment to a bunch of people who couldn't get along just like us. I believe this morning, and hear me, please, I believe this morning God is asking Crothers Creek Community Church to be desperate enough to ask for his move, no matter the cost to any of us. This, by the way, is real revival, not light shows and smoke. It is to live again, to see God duplicate life in us again, to bring new vitality. And by the way, I remind all of us this morning and also later, James uses us language here. The temple and prophetic references are all plural. They're to a, a people. We're all connected, and we need to ask God to deal with all of us. He says to us this day as we make more room, we move now to these three services, Crothers Creek, the fight in your heart and in this church, the quarrels, the coveting and the killing. Here it is. The lack of prayer among many of you or the wrong type of praying, the spiritual adultery, the living like Jesus really isn't in control, the pride and non-ability to see sin, the presence, this is huge for us, the presence of powerless faith in many of you where your faith is anemic. You have never experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. You, you talk about other people, but you have an anemic faith. For you who have not resisted the demonic, God says to us as we take this journey, this now must come to an end. My grace is ready, God says. Fire from heaven is at the door. All you must do is cry out and say, come. My grace is ready to cover all of us, he says. Church history teaches us that every time that in a church where there's a lack of prayer, an absence of joy or love for worship, a lack of appreciation for life, a lack of sensitivity to sin or the consequences of sin to others, a lack of compassion for others, a lack of motivation or need to tell people the good news. When disobedience becomes nor normalized, even in secret, these are the signs that a community must come and say, Lord, we are unclean, make us pure. And, and by the way, the, the results are nothing but life-changing. I'm ending with this. Listen. When God shows up in a church, for real, in, in a palpable way like this, families, marriages, and relationships get healed overnight. Sin is removed in a way we've never seen, and we lose our taste for it. The things of God, like worship services, prayer, communion, community, we can't get enough of them. And not only that, suddenly 10 people then 20, then 40, then 50, then 100, then 200, then 300, and the list goes on. People we never thought would ever want to check out Jesus just start suddenly becoming Christians. And we all look around at each other and go, well, what's going on? This is what James says to us. Let me end with this verse that's quoted at every youth gathering I was ever at that seems to be on every piece of paper produced by evangelicals. It's this one out of Chronicles. Everyone know it? If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. To be honest, I'm quite sick and tired of this being used because I, I don't think most people want to do that. 
God says, I am ready, Crothers Creek Community Church, to heal your land. What does that mean? I am ready to see so many people come to me. I am ready to see hundreds, and Dave said it in faith, thousands come to faith, not for the glory of Crothers, but for his glory. I am desirous for people to come and be transformed and have the healing that you have had and I have had. But he says, if this takes place, you must pray in a way you've never prayed, and you must repent of sin, and you must say to God as a church, do anything that is needed, anything that's needed. Come and heal our land. The land's healing is more important than what I think or my theology or what my rights are. Come. It's a brilliant summary of James chapter 4. This morning as we start a 909 service here, and then the 1111 and the 606, you want to see this? All these empty chairs filled? Really? You want to have to open the balcony again for you coffee people? Yes, there it is. Yeah. You want to see it happen once and twice and three times over? Honestly, it's not going to be through programs. It is not going to be through cool worship and great preaching or, or, or many of us volunteering. Though all of that is godly, it is going to be right here. Where we, the people, say, it just doesn't matter anymore what I think. God, come, I submit, I repent, change me, make me so different and marked difference that people will have to ask why. James says to us now, 2,000 years later, submit to God, resist the devil, flee, cleanse your hands, cleanse your heart, and I will lift you up. He says in this great Old Testament passage, when those things happen, healing of the land takes place, but not before. God in his sovereignty chooses much of the time to limit his work because he's looking for human partners. Who's in? It's easy to say on a Sunday morning, but there's nothing more appropriate than this passage for us today. So why don't you join me and pray only if you can as the worship team comes. Lord, hear our prayer. I mean, this passage is really difficult. And I know some people right now are even thinking, Lord, I'm fine. I'm not one of those people. But we as a people are the issue. So here's my simple prayer. I don't have anything else to say. Lord, oh, fill us with your spirit. Help us to turn from sin. Help us to resist the world and the devil. Move in us in a way you never have. I pray for a real revival. And I pray, Lord, we clean our hearts and our hands and you would do a work. We invite you to do a work in our church we have never seen. And then finally, Lord, we ask that you would bring many, many people to Christ because of it. We pray this for your glory, not our glory, not our church's reputation, really for the kingdom of God. Holy Spirit, I end with this. I ask you now to come as one of the shepherds of this church. I'm inviting you, Holy Spirit, to come now on this service and the next service and the next service and the many watching and listening. I ask you to come now and do a work we, we cannot afford you not to any longer. We're desperate. Come, Lord Jesus. Deal with quarrels, fighting, love for the world among us, and give us a heart we've never had as a family. I ask this in the name of Jesus, who still does miracles. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you want to know more about our church or give financially, go to our website at www.crotherscreek.ca.